Good morning, everybody. If you would, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be beginning in Mark's Gospel today. The last major book we were in, or we spent a lot of time, was we were in the book of Colossians, and there we saw the centrality of Jesus in our lives and in the entire universe. All things were made through him and for him. He's the one who sustains everything. Before that, Scott started a series and I wrapped it up on how Jesus affirms and confirms the Old Testament. All the Old Testament we saw was pointing forward to Jesus and now how he turned around, turned around and he confirmed, especially those parts of Scripture that are most in debate today. As we look into Mark's Gospel, we're going to get a view of who Jesus is by the pen of Mark and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We'll get a view of the life and ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we'll be... Starting today in one verse, that'll be the first verse. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. There is no one like you. Lord, in all of our weakness and our failings and our ignorance and our sin, Lord, you stand as the glorious one. You are sinless. You are unfailing. You are God above all. And this morning we praise you. Thank you for that great exchange that we heard about. There is no one who has loved us like you have. We bless your name. We pray that you would help us as we look into your word this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had somebody ask you, what, what's your dad like? Maybe if he's passed on to glory, what, what was your dad like? Have you had anybody ask you that before? When you think about it, where do you even begin? Where do you begin? What are the first things that would jump to your mind? What are the stories that are the most important that you would want to share? What are the, the dad sayings that you would want to share? How about which dad jokes are going to make the cut? There's got to be millions of them to sift through. What, uh, which dad jokes rise to the top? Depending on the amount of time you had, and depending on who you were talking to, you would include some details, and you'd probably leave other details out. You might even start in different places, depending on who you were talking to. To one person, you might begin by talking about the place where he was born. Uh, and talking to another person, you might talk about what he was like when you were growing up. As we begin our time in Mark's Gospel today, uh, we get to see where Mark begins. Not telling us about his dad, but telling us 
about his Lord and Savior, about our Lord and Savior. In this first verse, Mark introduces Jesus, and I think in light of that, we should accept who Jesus is. And in this one short verse, uh, we get most of the key elements of this gospel. Uh, We could take three parts of that today. We could see Jesus, the good news, Jesus, the Christ, and Jesus, the Son of God. All three of those are here, and we'll, we'll look at those. If you're young and you want to draw a picture, we're moving into the Thanksgiving season, and so you could draw a picture of something that you're thankful for. I'd be interested to see that afterwards. Let's start with Jesus, the good news. So where exactly does Mark begin as he's introducing us to Jesus? Well, he starts at the beginning. This reminds us of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But Mark's gospel, the beginning that he's starting at, is first with who Jesus is, and then in the account of John the Baptist as he prepares the way for Jesus. Now, Luke starts his gospel with the birth of Jesus. And Matthew goes farther back. Matthew starts with a genealogy that goes all the way back to Abraham. And John beats them all. John goes all the way back before creation as the word is with God in the beginning. Uh, We find in John's gospel that John is faster than Peter. He beats Peter to the tomb. Um, But he also one-ups everybody else in going farther back in his his gospel account. And uh, Mark is not going all that way back. We'll come back next week and see uh, his start with John the Baptist. The reality is Mark gets right to it in his gospel. There's no birth narrative in the gospel of Mark. No angels, no shepherds, no cattle, no nothing. He's getting right to the point with no delay. In fact, Mark's gospel moves along at a pretty good clip. Uh, In in fact, one of his favorite words to use in this gospel, if you're not aware of it already, is the word immediately. Immediately. Immediately this happened, and then immediately that happened. Uh, If you keep an eye out, you'll see it. For instance, in in chapter 1, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Uh, It comes up. Chapter 1, verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Uh, Mark is moving swiftly uh, in his gospel. He's not messing around. He's not going to wax eloquent. He's not going to go into intricate details about things. He wants his hearers to know Jesus and to know him fast. And the Holy Spirit wants us to know Jesus and to know him better. As we press into Mark's gospel, expect to get a good view of Jesus right away. We'll see his power and authority over everything on this planet. Sickness, Satan, storms, sin, all find themselves bested by this Jesus, the Son of God. There is nothing that will not be uh, plowed over by the Son of God when he comes on the scene. Now, I've been calling this Mark's Gospel. And that's the name 
That's on the header in your Bibles, but that's not in the text itself. Why do we call this Mark's Gospel? How do we know that Mark wrote it? Well, we get the, the title, according the Gospel according to Mark, from church tradition. Uh, the early church suggested that this was Mark and gave various reasons for that. Um, I think that we can trust that. I don't trust church tradition in everything, but I think that in, in lack of a, for lack of a different reason, I, for a better reason, I, I think we should accept that Mark wrote this. Uh, John Mark is likely the Mark this is talking about. We meet him in Acts chapter 13. He goes on a missionary adventure with Paul and Barnabas, you'll remember. We talked about him a little bit uh, at the end of Colossians. You may remember as well that somewhere along the, the road, it seems that he gets weak knees or something goes on and he decides it's time for him to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to go home. He leaves Paul and Barnabas. Seems like he leaves them holding the bag. They're probably not in the best situation when he leaves them. And then in the end of Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas are going to go back out on a mission trip, they came into Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, early Acts 15. Later on, they're heading out on a missionary trip, and Barnabas says, hey, let's bring Mark along. And Paul says, no way! I'm not bringing him along. I have had enough of John Mark. And Barnabas says, no, we should... I'm, I'm of course, playing in this a little bit. But he says... You know, we should, we should give him another chance. We should bring him along. And their disagreement is so sharp that they decide to part companies. Paul and Silas go one way, and Barnabas and Mark go the other. And we see later on, we see evidence of a reconciliation between Mark and Paul uh, in places like what we saw at the end of Colossians and in Philemon and in 2 Timothy at the end of that letter. Paul is asking, uh, he's sending greetings from Mark and Colossians, and he's asking that Mark would be sent to him because he's useful in 2 Timothy. So that uh, ruffle in their relationship is straightened out and reconciled. We see from this Mark, uh, he is a man who had weaknesses. I think we can relate to that. But God used him in spite of his failings. God matured Mark and made him useful in his service. He can do that even in us. We've got failings. We've got weaknesses. Uh, if we're honest and look at our own hearts, we've we got trouble. And yet, God is working in us. He is making us vessels that are fit for good service. Again, uh, based on early church tradition about this letter, uh, the suggestion is that Mark wrote this gospel with Peter at his elbow. Some suggest that perhaps Mark wrote this after Peter died, shortly after he died. Others, it uh, seems more likely that he wrote this while Peter was still alive. And if that's the case, then Mark, this gospel, is likely written from Rome, where Peter is imprisoned. Uh, and it's also evident, as we look through this gospel, that Mark is written largely for a Gentile audience. Now, how do we know that when he doesn't say that in the beginning? Well, I think if we read it carefully, we'll see some things that, that would make sense of being written to a, a Gentile audience primarily, though not exclusively. i just jump ahead here in 
Mark chapter 7, for instance, says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now there's a parenthesis here in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, if Mark were writing primarily to Jewish, a Jewish audience, he wouldn't have to explain the traditions of the Jews and the Pharisees. They'd know it. He wouldn't need to take the time for that. I think he's writing at least to a group that is uh, a large part of Gentiles, if not primarily Gentiles. You can also see it uh, differently if you compare Mark to Matthew, for instance. When Matthew opens up his gospel, it is just point after point after point after point of the way that Jesus fulfills the Old Covenant. You can count it up in Mark. If you move through there, you see it again and again. This is to fulfill. This is to fulfill. This is to fulfill. Matthew is trying to persuade Jewish, a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the fulfillment. That's, I think, his main audience. Mark doesn't have nearly as much fulfillment language. Not that Jesus doesn't fulfill, uh, but he's, he's not hammering on the same anvil that, that Matthew is, even though he is preaching the same gospel. Another aspect that would lead me and others to think that he's preaching to Gentiles, uh, sharing this primarily with Gentiles, is that Mark often points out the way that Jesus accepted outsiders at many points. Uh, there's part of his gospel that he, he goes into Gentile territory uh, and, and preaches there. Uh, as well, it's, we'll see soon about the, the title, The Son of God, uh, it, it isn't anybody, any of his disciples that understand him to be the son. Nobody declares him that in Mark's gospel. Uh, the only one who says that is the Roman centurion when Jesus is being crucified in, in Mark 15.39. The centurion, when Jesus dies, says, Truly, this man was the son of God. It's a Gentile who gets it. All of these reasons would seem to point to the fact that Mark probably is writing to some Jewish readers, but as well, he's, he's probably primarily writing to a Gentile audience. So that's a bit about Mark and his gospel, but we could also ask, what is a gospel? We're still uh, on the theme of thinking of Jesus, the gospel, uh, but we're, we're looking as well at Mark's gospel here in that. What is a gospel? Well, a gospel, we can think about Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, Luke's and John's gospel. Uh, it is a unique type of writing. Uh, there is nothing that we have before these gospels that's anything like them. Uh, these authors created an entirely new genre when they wrote these under the inspiration of the Spirit. A gospel, like Mark's gospel, it's kind of like a biography, but it's not merely that. It doesn't capture every single detail. We, we would wonder all sorts of questions about Jesus. What was Jesus like as a teenager? We'd be interested to hear that. Uh, we could think of all sorts of things that we would be interested to know about what Jesus was like at this point of his life or when he was uh, after this teaching point or miracle. Uh, but we don't get that. Uh, some have compared the Gospels more to a, 
a painting than a picture. You know how a picture works. You get your camera out and you snap a picture. You can, look that, you can look at it later and you can look at all the details. Maybe you didn't really care about this or that detail in it before, but later you realize, oh, wait a minute, look at who's in the background here. Uh, that's how pictures work. They capture all of the details in that frame. What's the saying? A picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, well, a painting, on the other hand, doesn't have all those details. In a painting, the painter includes the details that are most pertinent to what he or she is trying to communicate. So if there's a painting of two people talking and on the table there's an apple, it's not an accident that that apple's in the painting. It's probably significant, right? I think that's the way we want to approach the Gospels. The Gospel writers don't add any throwaway details. Everything that's in these Gospel records is there on purpose. It's to, to flesh out something about who Jesus is. And so that's the way we should read them. We, we aren't going to get every single detail, uh, but what is included is important. Every detail is true, and it is important for what Mark or Matthew or John is trying to tell us. Something else about the Gospels, these, uh, these Gospel accounts, is that they call for action on the part of the reader. They're not just simply a nice story about Jesus. They call for action for those who are reading it. First of all, to believe and be saved. Uh, John is very explicit in this. In John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us there, I wrote this gospel account so that you may believe in Jesus and have eternal life. So that's a bit about what a gospel is. That's the type of book this is. Uh, what we've got to understand as well that a gospel, all four gospels, point to the gospel. There is only one gospel in that sense. And that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word gospel, you probably know, means good news. It is a message that is heard and believed. It's the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. It's the good news of what God has done to save us in Christ. The news that the Son of God has come, lived without sin, that he has yielded that perfect life in death for us as a substitute, and that he has risen to new life, and that through faith in him, we can live forever with him. That's the gospel. And Mark's gospel is written to point to that gospel. He is sharing the gospel with us through his gospel account. Jesus himself is the good news of the gospel in his person and in his work. Let's look next uh, at what Mark says. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at Jesus the Christ. Now, even if Mark's not primarily writing to a Jewish audience, it's still important that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and uh, we can't forget that Jesus himself was a Jew. 
we want to fully understand the significance of who Jesus is and what he's done, we've got to press into the Old Testament. We've got to understand the foundation on which the rest of the Bible is built. The word Messiah is from Hebrew, and when it gets translated into Greek, it's the word Christos. It's the word we have for Christ. Both words, uh, Messiah and Christos, they point to anointing. It talks about the anointed one. And you can think of examples of anointing in the Old Testament. Again, we're going back to the Old Testament here. Think about David's anointing. Do you remember when David was anointed as king over Israel? Uh, God sends Samuel to go and anoint one from the house of Jesse. And Samuel thinks it's going to be one of these older, more impressive brothers. But it turns out that God has called David. And so Samuel puts oil on David and anoints him to be king of Israel. He was set aside for that role. Or you can think of the high priest. The high priest was also anointed for his service. The anointed one, whether it's a priest or a king, is set aside for a special work by the Lord. And that is certainly true of Jesus. He is the anointed one. He is both king and he's priest. He is set apart for his unique service. He was and is a king. He is the king. He was both sacrifice and he was the priest who made the offering. And Jesus was the fulfillment of the hopes and expectations of those faith-filled saints in the Old Testament. He is promised in places like Ezekiel chapter 34. I'll read a few verses from there. In Ezekiel 34, God is talking about the shepherds of Israel that have been feeding themselves on the flock of God. And God promises judgment on them. In Ezekiel 34, verses 20 and following, He says, Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, David's been dead for hundreds of years by this point. So David's not coming back on the scenes to be king of Israel. Not literally. This one who God is talking about, God will say earlier that he will shepherd his people. And then David will shepherd his people. The reality is both of these pictures come together in Jesus. He is the new David. He's the son of David who will be the shepherd of God's people. There are passages like this and others throughout the Old Testament that are pointing forward to who Jesus is. Pointing forward to this one who is coming who will save God's people. And Jesus is that one. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. 
it's important to understand all of who Jesus was and is. We shouldn't skip over the Old Testament for the New Testament. We should treasure the Old Testament and allow it to drive us to this Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah and he is ours as well. And this title, the Christ, is going to be important in Mark's gospel. It's going to be a big deal in Mark 8.29 where Peter confesses who Jesus is. He confesses Jesus to be the Christ. And that's going to be the turning point in Mark's gospel. Before that, we'll see Jesus has been carrying out his ministry in Galilee and in the northern area. And then once Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, there begins a trajectory and everything else is on the way throughout Mark's gospel. And the direction Jesus is heading is to Jerusalem. And he's heading to Jerusalem to die. The reality that Jesus is the Christ is a pivot point in Mark's gospel. And there's one final bit of identity we see here in Mark 1.1, and that is that Jesus is called the Son of God. Let's look at Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, likewise, as Christ is key here, Jesus as the Son of God is also key in Mark's gospel. Uh, we're told right up front about it. This Jesus is no ordinary man. It's interesting that the demons get it in Mark's gospel. Uh, the demons identify who Jesus is at once. See this in chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus is healing. Uh, he's, he's got great crowds coming after him. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They get it. They know who he is. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 7, uh, Jesus goes to the, the Gerasene demoniac, and when he uh, sees Jesus, he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He is the Son of the Most High God. The, the demons get it. They understand that Jesus is the Son of God. But nobody else seems to get it. No other humans seem to get the point about who Jesus is, that he's the Son. Huh. They, again, I mentioned it earlier, but the only one who seems to get it in Mark's gospel on the human plane is the Roman centurion, who after Jesus breathes his last and the curtain is torn in the temple, the centurion confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's not as if God didn't tell anybody in this gospel. In fact, back in chapter 1, verse 11, at Jesus' baptism... He's baptized, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. See this as well in chapter 9, when Jesus is transfigured before three of his disciples. The Father says much the same. Chapter 9, verse 7. It says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So God has told people that this is my Son, but they haven't gotten it. Mark 
as he's opening up his gospel, he's telling us right at the beginning, he's putting it right there in front of us, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the unique Son of God. He's the only begotten, John's gospel will tell us. And something we've got to understand is the Old Testament makes it clear, as well as the New Testament, there's only one God. There are not many gods. There's not a couple gods. There is only one God. And yet, as the Old Testament turns to the New Testament and opens up, we see that this one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We had hints of it from the Old Testament, but it's revealed clearly when Jesus, the Son of God, comes on the scenes in the New Testament. He is and was the Jewish Messiah. He is so much more. He is the very Son of God. He's truly God and truly man. And we're going to see his divine power at work in this gospel as the story unfolds. Thus far, Mark has simply introduced us to Jesus. Uh, He's told us beforehand who this Jesus is, and he's given us the inside scoop before the gospel story plays out. The disciples might say things like in Mark 4.41, after Jesus calms the storm, they'll say, who is this then? Uh, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But we're told up front who this is. We shouldn't be shocked by the kinds of things that he does, because we're told in advance the kind of person that he is. And we who have come to know this Jesus by faith uh, are reading this as his people. So as we read this, and as we think through this, we get to see who this Jesus was. We get to see what he did in his earthly ministry. We get to see the revelation of God through Jesus. That's a a privilege for us. And I would invite you to, as we work through this, to let it hit you afresh. Uh, Let Mark help us to know Jesus better. He is the good news. He is the Christ. And he is the Son of God. May his spirit help us to delight in him more. Again, next week, we're going to follow up and look at what John the Baptist says as he prepares the way for this one sent from God. Well, if the men would prepare for communion, Elizabeth would come to play. We'll